I am standing on the corner. Do, 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 do. What was that? Somebody shared on Twitter. This is months ago by now, but someone shared just that little clip from The Sopranos of Tony Soprano going, sitting on a park bench <laughs> as he walks through the house. And it's so fucking funny. <laughs> nice. You know, I, yeah. I do wonder. Go ahead. Well, um, I was just going to say to like, of all the strikes that you would think Tony Soprano might be involved in, perhaps it would be one involving because of the way that this is commonly portrayed in the media mm-hmm. and not in actuality, like something like the ATU strike that we recorded on last week. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, Look, I'm just trying to find a transition oh, into talking about the ATU. I was gonna, <laughs> I was gonna start with, yo, I'm angry, folks. It is a, it is a angry day, and uh, she has been saying that. <laughs> I mean, this is uh, what th- I guess is that's also not a good segue because they won. Yeah, I yeah. mean, well, that yeah, I don't know because we don't have like a lot of details about them winning their strike because they won it like they won it like the day after we did our episode, but they did get a three year contract. They got better pay better benefits more holidays and they got equalization like of wages with workers in other cities that was one of the big things they were fighting for which is pretty dope because i also just really appreciated the fact that they put out their statement about winning the strike and in it they were still like yeah so we're pretty glad we won the strike we got a great contract we kick ass also wamato really needs to consider getting rid of this stupid private contractor model and going back to actually making this a real public service because this company sucks and is like basically defrauding the customers by taking away all their profits which i was just like that's very true hell yeah <laughs> just like that's not what i'm used to seeing from like a a victory announcement usually there's a lot more like well we're very glad we were able to negotiate this contract we look forward we to the pay, future yeah, we, they're we, just we, like, like the workers standing strong on the picket line and and you know our membership are the the folks that we should be saluting right now and but then they're just like well that and also what the fuck is with this public-private partnership bullshit? Yeah, absolutely. Which is good stuff, because that's, you know, we need unions to start pushing back on stuff like that, because, I mean, that's, you know, that's where the people power is. That's the thing, because, like, you get people being like, oh, call your senator, call your congressman. Fuck that. Call your local union. Yeah. Oh, I mean, you, you got to keep fighting. You got to keep pushing and pushing because that's what the company is going to do. Like they're not going to sit back and, and rest on their laurels. They're not going to cool their jets or hold any horses. They're, they're going to, you know, once you win your strike or win your contract, they're like team rocket. They'll, they'll blast off again and then they'll be back next episode (laughs) to fuck with you all over again. Their eggs will be in multiple (laughs) baskets being counted when appropriate. Your cart will be before a gift horse you led to water and looked right in the mouth. It's <laughs> I support uh, all of this uh, this new way of just viewing all employers, especially well specifically private employers, as uh, cartoon villains. Yeah, <laughs> I mean you used to have really good cartoon villains that were like CEOs of companies. Like remember Inspector Gadget? I don't remember what his bad guy was called, but he was like a big CEO oh, dude um, with like a cat in his lap and Doctor you know, Claw. Doctor Claw. That's a real villain right there. That's someone you can really hate. You know, <laughs> not only is he a, a visibly evil guy, you know he's not paying those henchmen jack shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I go back and forth because I wonder if like Fight for Fifteen has 
like use the Hamburglar to like personify McDonald's <laughs> stealing workers' wages. But then you get into the question of, or is actually the Hamburglar a yeah, good is he the guy Robin because Hood he's of, basic of McDonald's, right? Right. <laughs> this is the important lore that I think we need to <laughs> we need to deal with before we can determine our proper strategy <laughs> All right. for unionizing so the, McDonald's. The Hamburglar is Robin Hood. A.K.A. Nestor Machno, A.K.A. Joseph Stalin. <laughs> All the famous robbers I can think of who did cool shit. <laughs> and that makes Grimace, Kautsky. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. I'm actually not sure. Well, yeah, and and fucking Ronald McDonald himself apart. is Winston Churchill. Yeah, that's right. Bill Gates is the sheriff of Nottingham. Okay, now that we've got that all ironed out. everybody your favorite mixed metaphor extended uh, analogy podcast we're an entirely listener supported show so thank you so much for any money you might be giving us on patreon it goes a long way towards making sure the show keeps happening if you're not in the discord yet get in the discord what are you doing uh if you if you are a patron and you don't have any stickers yet just message us on patreon and we will get you some stickers and if you want to help the show a little bit more you can leave us a five-star review on apple podcast or uh write it on on a crash test dummy in some <laughs> those those floaty water thingies and send it out to into the lake to be discovered by a lifeguard <laughs> uh, <laughs> hell yeah so our first episode, this uh, first episode, boy, I'm really starting this off strong. <laughs> our first story, this episode, is catching up real quick on the folks at Intelligentsia Coffee. Because a couple of uh, months back on episode 109, we talked about the workers at Intelligentsia, you know, joining the ranks of all of the recently unionizing coffee shops and specifically really pointing to the fact that Chicago has kind of, you know, been one of the meccas in, in the U S for this recent wave of unionizing because there'd been all sorts of different companies there that have recently, you know, got on board the union train. And this week we finally got to see the results of those workers election and Hey, look, it's another coffee company. It's another union drive. It's another landslide win. So on last Monday, August 8th, the workers' ballots were counted, and in a 9-to-1 vote, the workers you know, voted in a landslide to be represented by IBEW Local 1220. And that probably, if you remember the story when we talked about them, that might sound like a very low count because, I need, because um, Intelligentsia is not, you know, a single coffee shop. Mm -hmm. They are a chain. And, and this bargaining unit actually represents 27 baristas. And so the issue that apparently they ran into is that intelligentsia, like apparently shot themselves in the foot by trying to screw with the election by giving out of date mailing addresses to the NLRB. Jesus and, Christ. Like they think that's why there was only 10, you know, votes returned out of the 27. Uh -huh. But regardless, I mean, if, if that was their attempt, it certainly didn't work <laughs> because yeah, I mean, if that, if that, if those 10 baristas are a representative sample of 
all 27. It's like if they had all voted, 24 or 25 of them would have voted yes. Right. So. Right. Exactly. So, like, uh, this comes with after other attempts of union busting by the company as well, including sending out anti-union mailers, telling workers to vote no, holding one big captive audience meeting on July 5th, which... <laughs> Uh, Barista Jordan Parshall told in these times, uh, quote, it didn't really motivate anyone to vote no. Well, I was really surprised <laughs> that there was only a single captive audience meeting, because if anybody has been through yeah. uh, captive audience meetings, they would know that they happen usually daily for a month uh, and or or, you know, at, at the least common, you know, like every week or something like that. And uh, I'm not surprised that one uh, meeting of, of like, uh, well, you know, the unions, well, they're old, right? It is is not very compelling. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, and it's 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 interesting. I think in a, in a lot of stories that we've been seeing recently, there seems to be kind of a, a, a latent complaint from the union busters, which is that like these, these people, they're just not receptive to our bullshit anymore. <laughs> it seems like, yeah. it seems like people are so thoroughly jaded. They just won't believe us when we lie to them anymore. <laughs> Nobody wants to be union busted anymore. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This absolutely. cynical workforce so- has decided. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's basically just going into a courtroom with the argument. You're on, are kids these days <laughs> i rest my case maybe these kids wouldn't want a union so bad if they would just get off their damn phones <laughs> always trading pogs and yeah. pokemon so, cards uh, <laughs> so in joining ibw local 1220 intelligentsia joins other uh unionized coffee workers in the city uh because part of what specifically prompted these workers to to go after the IBEW as well to look to them as, as their representatives was that IBEW, you know, was right at the heart of the organization effort for the Colectivo mm-hmm. workers who also, you know, have stores in Chicago. And so that by being able to talk to fellow workers at, you know, a chain that had just unionized, it helped inspire this drive alongside, of course, the explosive Starbucks workers United movement. And so, you know, in, in response to their victory, um, partial that barista also explained to the Chicago Tribune. We just want the terms of our employment to be in a contract that is solid and secure. And every few years, we know we can bargain to make it even better. Right now, our company, they decide the terms of our employment. They decide how many holidays we get. They decide what our health care is. And we don't have any tangible way to hold them accountable for those things. Not, yeah, it's, it's, yeah so I mean, they used real- to not, but now. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Right. But it's it's still a really salient point, and I think it really shows how the uh, people who are represented by this, who who represent themselves in this union, uh, are are really constantly looking towards the future. Because additionally, like they're still hammering out this first contract, and at the same time, they're getting ready to expand their union drive all over the nation to like L.A., Boston, New York, Austin, Texas, and it's like they must know it can be done because they've seen the explosive energy that's come from union drives like Starbucks. And, and Amazon as well. And uh, you have uh, Partial Continuing who also says, quote, we really do hope this campaign inspires other cafes and we hope whatever contract we're able to bargain for can become an industry standard, which is, I, I love to see that kind of energy when you're still well, working on it. even thinking of that, I mean, Hell with yeah. all of the different coffee shops that have unionized recently, I imagine 
that in certain places there could be, you know, depending on when contracts are being negotiated, uh, a s- minor sector-wide strikes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, like places like Boston, Buffalo, Seattle, Chicago, where you're starting to see more and more union density in the the coffee sector. Yeah, I think that's definitely a possibility in the future, an well, exciting one, like to be honest. Yeah. So, man, I love density. What a cool <laughs> thing. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I mean like even then there are additional uh, victories in food work. Uh, this one being in Minneapolis where Trader Joe's has won their second union. So, I mean, like a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Hadley, Massachusetts Trader Joe's who that had won the first union election in the chain's history. But uh, I guess the union drive is going to be spreading across the nation now with the workers in Minneapolis voting 55 to 5 in favor of unionizing with Hell their yeah. independent That's union, so cool. Trader Joe's United. Yeah. Like, this was rad to see. Like, because... You know, the Trader Joe's United movement kind of bubbled up very quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've been organizing for a little while, but the announcement and then the election, that all happened pretty fast. And the election in in Massachusetts was, I believe it was about 60-40. So not like it was a solid win for the union, showed that the workers did want the union, but it, you know, it wasn't like a 90% landslide. And then we get this second one in Minneapolis and it's just like, like clear that you had essentially nearly unanimous support. And that's really great to see because, you know, Trader Joe's, we love to see all the small places like Collectivo, like Intelligentsia, all the small, like Voodoo Donuts, all these places that are unionizing. Fantastic. We support all of them. But like Trader Joe's is a big chain. Like I believe there's around 550 locations across mm-hmm. the country. So the fact that we've not just had one successful union election, but now a second one and a, a like really convincing second win too. Like, I think that bodes really well for this becoming a nationwide movement. Yeah, and- absolutely. Well, it's a testament to how long and how deeply uh, these workers have been immiserated in these kinds of jobs, but it's also uh, a testament to the organizing tactics that are, are springing up and are being wielded very cunningly by the workers in, in these, uh, you know, essentially the greater field of food service where we're seeing a, a lot of movement. So workers at this store actually say they were motivated to unionize by many of the same deteriorating working conditions and stagnant pay as the workers in Massachusetts. And of course, since the pandemic began, they also say there's been a noticeable decline in the relationship between management and workers. Hmm. I've never heard of that before. And then, <laughs> so now they're looking well, forward to... you might have heard of it on our show. We've been covering Trader Joe's since like episode I don't know, 20 or 17 or something like that. (laughs) I know I'm holding back the urge to talk about now how uh, Minneapolis is the closest place for me to get my soy chorizo because I bet the listeners are like, Trader Joe's, John's going to talk about soy chorizo. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I love that fucking soy chorizo. It's so good. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, even as this was happening, uh, the company couldn't resist throwing in one last little jab, one last little quote concern about the union, but then also said that they will bargain with the workers. And you have a company spokesperson, Nakia Rohde, who said in a statement, quote, while we are concerned about how this new rigid legal 
legal relationship. <laughs> I'm sorry. Rigid legal relationship will impact Trader Joe's culture. <laughs> we are prepared to immediately begin discussions with their collective bargaining representative to negotiate. How is it that we will hand oh, no, this down <laughs> from on high? How is it that we will not demand culture. that workers act in a particular way, reflecting <laughs> my personal values as the ruling class capitalist? Yeah, that's maybe one of the worst ways I've ever heard a company agree to bargain in good faith. <laughs> <laughs> right? They just couldn't help it. They couldn't just be like, you could just like eat the crow and just be like, well, you know, our workers have spoken. They, we, we, we don't necessarily think this was the right path, but whatever. This is what they mm-hmm. said they want to do, and we'll bargain with them. Like that's, I feel like, the more adult way to handle this. But instead, you have this con- concern trolling about Trader Joe's culture. What the fuck does that even mean? <laughs> oh yeah, and the rigidity of this new legal relationship, as if the union is going to show up and just like rule the store with an iron fist. <laughs> like, I mean, which would be I cool. Would, I hope so. I I would like that, but it's not what's going to happen. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, the the workers themselves are not allowed to be part of Trader Joe's, Joe's culture. Apparently, like like the idea that they are going to be dis that the union, which is the workers, is going to be disrupting this culture. Uh, then uh, it kind of to me sounds like it's being imposed from the outside. Uh, that's not really a culture necessarily. It's more of a imposed set of rules and demands. You just don't understand how deep Trader Joe's culture goes. You understand? <laughs> it was founded in Germany in the 1950s, and <laughs> they love to embody the spirit of what they call Trader Joe Kulturen. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. But I mean, look, this is a really exciting win because, you know, now we're on the precipice of Trader Joe's United potentially becoming the next in this series, you know, of big nationwide organizing movements that have propped up this year, you know, from the ALU to Starbucks Workers United to Mm -hmm. the folks at REI who have been organizing and the folks at Apple. So like, this is, I think, a really exciting development because again, it's not just us like hoping that workers at other stores will want to unionize because like, for instance, one of the organizers and key union spokespeople uh, for Trader Joe's United, Sarah Beth Ryther told Bloomberg, quote, we've received messages from Trader Joe's in every single state that has a Trader Joe's. We're Fuck riding yeah. a wave, end quote. <laughs> we finally yeah. got Rhode Island and Alaska. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, which, which fucking rules. And I mean, and it's also, it's again, it's, it's not just like we've heard from these people. Like there's two union Trader Joe's now, and mm-hmm. there's a third one that's already, you know, applied for an NLRB election, uh, the, which is in Colorado. And interestingly is actually not going through the Trader Joe's United movement, but is going through UFCW, but either way, still very good. Love to see more Trader Joe's unionizing. And I don't really think that we're likely to see this this surge in unionizing at Trader Joe's or, you know, any of these service sector places slow down anytime soon. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I only hope that we get to keep bringing up more well-known names and being like, this company is now facing yeah. a unionization drive from its employees. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what? Aldi. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's just Trader Joe's older brother. <laughs> so now that we've done Literally. the two good, the, the good news stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're going to continue with oh. coffee and, and uh, you know, this kind of thing that we've been talking about most of the episode uh, with the uh, Heine Brothers follow-up and which the name, I th- think that this was originally covered uh, in the episode that I wasn't on. So I, I'm, I'm I a little so. bit... Uh, 
I mean, I did listen to that, but it's. I always remember more when I actually re- am on the episode. But uh, anyway, uh, apparently they have uh, really ramped up their union busting at, at the Heine Brothers. Yeah. I mean, like, so we had talked a little bit when we first talked about this organizing drive about some of the early union busting that the store had already done. Like, you know, we talked about workers getting disciplined, written up for organizing activities. And the big thing was the sudden closure of their location. I believe it's the Douglas Loop location, which was by far like the the most uh, strongly organized of their stores. But since then, they have increased their retaliation even more, taking yet another page out of the Starbucks union-busting, law-breaking playbook. And they have now actually fired the former manager of the Douglas Loop location, uh, Tamara Edwards. And so this is coming mostly out of a report from the Real News Network, who did a a really good write-up on this, uh, where the company claims they fired Edwards because she failed to get her shifts covered when she had to miss work. Uh, but that seems pretty unlikely, you know, when we look into the background of this, because Edwards was one of the managers at Heine Brothers who was not, you know, necessarily totally on board with the whole stop the union at any cost campaign. And, and she had reported before she was fired that company management was illegally polling workers at that store about support for the union. And during a, like a management you know, business call, like an organizing meeting phone call. And she was like actually interrogated about this process saying, quote, one time I was on a phone call with operations director, Tom Jenkins. And he asked, is there anything we can do to change people's minds? I answered no. To which he responded, that's disheartening. Which to me sounds like a threat. Like, oh yeah. Uh, it's just like, uh, so our, what are we what are we gonna do to stop these workers from sticking up for their rights? And then she's like, uh, well, we probably nothing's gonna work. And they go, well, if you're out of ideas, then you're out of then you're out of this business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's like I just imagine that's disheartening coming out in like Fat Tony's voice from The Simpsons, where he's like, "That's disheartening." I'll be seeing you yeah. later today, my friend. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's basically, oh, you don't have any ideas for union busting? Dang, nice job you've got there. Shame if something happened to it. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, the unions already filed uh, ULP specifically re- referencing the un- the illegal surveillance by management. And less than a week after that happened, Edwards was fired. Uh, Also, there's, I mean, they will, of course, deny it, but I don't really think you can avoid the racial element in this because uh, Heine Brothers stores had precisely one black store manager. And again, this is in Louisville. So it's, you know, that's not very representative to only, you know, have one like black store manager. Mm-hmm. And then they're the only store manager who has been fired during this campaign. So I mean, yeah, I think yeah. it's, I mean, we usually don't cover uh, uh, store managers in a union drive, but I think that this is a particular case where the, the manager was like, uh, I mean, the law is the law. Also, these workers do have legitimate grievances and yeah. then uh, is immediately fired. And that should be kind of a lesson. I mean, uh for people who are you know in management you know you might want to uh figure out how to keep your head down or like really build up the power of the workers in a way that like 
I don't know. There is no, there's no shielding you. You're no, they, they put you, <laughs> when you're lower management like that, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit on the show before. You're just put in like a really awful situation because it's like, yeah. you're, it, you're basically incentivized to keep siding with the company. And if you decide not to at any point, they will just deem you instantly replaceable and replace you. So like it, it sucks because you're not necessarily always in a position where trying to help the workers even would be helpful, you know? Uh, so it, it, and then also a lot of these managers, you know, they're salaried and then they're forced to work 60, 70 hours a week. Sometimes they make less on the hour than some of the people they supervise. And it, by design, muddies the class dynamics that are happening in the store. But, you know, meanwhile, the class dynamics between the store and the regional office or whatever, you know, those those remain unchanged. So at the end of the day, it's like you will get the the occasional kind of helpful manager. But ultimately, it's about like the actual laboring on the floor workers getting together and having power and those people who are kind of stuck in that middle position it's just like maybe reconsider your career path <laughs> yeah but i mean i mean thankfully you know her support for the union workers has been reciprocated since mm-hmm. by both the 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 union and the community. Right. Uh, I mean, she said, quote, the union had supported me even before I signed the petition. They helped me try to get my job back and made it public and known what this company is doing to me and all of their workers that put money in their pockets, end quote. And, Hell yeah. And the workers say that, like, you know, community support for the union drive has only increased since the closing of the Douglas Loop location and the surge in union busting. Like, Jasmine Bush, who is a worker organizer at the Gardner Lane store there, told the Real News Network, quote, Customers are overjoyed that we're organizing. Every day I get customers that come in and they want Union Strong written on their cup or they come through the drive-thru and say, hey, we support you. How can we help you? End quote. And so, like, this is the sort of stuff, because, you know, like, when we talk about with Starbucks, for instance, about how, like, at any of the Starbucks, like, near you, whether they're unionizing or not, really, you, you can help show your support by doing stuff like that. And I think sometimes people think, oh, well, that's not that's not really a thing like that. How is that really materially helping people? But we have had story after story after story where workers have said that those sorts of community shows of support make a real difference in knowing that the community is behind them. And so that's really why we encourage people to do that. Like, Oh, I think it's super important. I mean, as being someone who has been in a union drive, getting support from the people that you see as you know, customers really shows that you know you are supported by. I mean, the support from the community really helps keep that that revolutionary optimism going. Yeah, well, and you really see it on great display when you have these customer facing job positions that are when, that are doing union drives and organizing. Because, for instance, when the Douglas Loop store closed and people started coming into the other stores, who are they going to ask why the store was closed? They're not going right. to call corporate and ask. They're going to ask their barista, and their barista is probably going to be real with them. <laughs> like yeah. the company union busted that store closed, and now you have to drive six extra miles to come here. You want union strong written on your up i bet you do (laughs) hell yeah yeah and so i mean you know despite this union busting despite this clear uh retaliatory firing of this manager like the the workers are staying strong with their solidarity and are pressing on with their drive like during a recent press conference worker organizer sabrina Lindsay, i mean laid it out there pretty clear (coughs) bless you saying quote we the workers run heine brothers coffee And we, the workers, deserve to have a strong and present voice in the operations of this company, end quote. Hell yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess in our next one, uh, we are just not deviating from this food work uh, category today. <laughs> this one being, we've covered this a couple times recently, Chipotle, uh, being uh, charged with 600, wait, thousand legal <laughs> violations in new york city where they have violated uh the fair work week law and with a, a settlement that they've come to with the city they're gonna pay out 20 million dollars for this for these violations which i think uh you know if you do the math out there it's pretty small considering uh that's 33 dollars per violation yeah, yeah, how much money do they make per violation by working these fucking Chipotle workers to the bone? Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's funny because a, a while ago I read uh, an article for Jacobin that Alex Press had written about Chipotle a couple of years ago uh, where she referred to Chipotle as a criminal enterprise. And I just thought at the time, oh, this is a really good turn of phrase. This, this sounds right. But the more stories we cover about Chipotle, I'm like, that's just an accurate description. <laughs> like... There's not even really you don't have to put literary flair on it. That's like just true. It's and and because the like six hundred thousand violations of the law. Like we were talking about this before we started, but like if a person, if a worker somehow managed to break the law six hundred thousand times, in addition to being surprised at how that was possible, we would immediately see that person, you know, thrown in like the most ridiculous like jail that they could possibly build. Meanwhile, you get, we get this $20 million fine for 600,000 violations. And it comes out trumpeted by the city is like, Oh, look at, we're holding companies accountable yeah. to by making them pay workers $50 for each week that the law was broken while well, they were there. Well, and let's if talk they're about still employed there. Right. Well, and, and it's just crazy to me too. Cause when I first saw this, I was like 600,000 nationwide. And then it's like, no, right. just in New York city. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. Well, and let's talk about what laws they actually broke because the fair work week law passed by the city in 2017 mandates that fast food companies must either provide workers with schedules two weeks in advance or pay them a bonus. They must also provide at least 11 hours between shifts or again, pay a bonus. And then uh, another related law requires large employers to provide workers with sick leave. Chipotle has violated all of them. Yeah. I'll tell you, boy, I, I would need sick leave if I was eating Chipotle for lunch every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, how many uh, how many outbreaks has Chipotle been responsible for of things like norovirus? But, mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's literally, this was, the city passed laws, like, that, and these are good, like, those are good reforms, like, requiring schedules in advance, requiring sick leave, re re basically, re that the middle one is basically you can't have somebody do a clopin, which is good, um, all of those are good. I would argue against the part where you can skip them by paying a bonus, but whatever. Like, and but Chipotle sees them pass the law, and it's not as if they missed it. Like, when you're a company this big, you have a team of lawyers that just look at this stuff, mm -hmm. and they're just like, "Oh man, it'd be really expensive to comply with that." What if we just didn't? But also, what if we like, just said, "Fuck it," miss it for <laughs> what five years? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's the other thing is that they've been breaking this, these laws for five years, and they're only now getting caught. So it's, 
Yeah, I don't, it, it was the reception to this that was so frustrating because all the business press was just like, New York City hits Chipotle with huge fines, blah, 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 blah. It's like, Chipotle made $7.5 billion last mm-hmm. year. This is nothing to them. Yeah, and that's I'm, $750,000 million, right? <laughs> like, that's so much. And then yeah. they pay out 20. So right. 20 170,000ths. And, and that's for <laughs> crimes committed over a five-year period. So you're talking Chipotle during those five years probably brought in somewhere in the neighborhood of 30-plus billion dollars. So, like, it's, it's, this is nothing. This, and is, o- I, this is OSHA core level yeah, fines. Like, I yeah, like, I would be willing to bet that at some point there is a, if, if they recorded this, that there is an internal memo from a meeting at Chipotle between their lawyers and their management, wherein they laid out what is the estimated cost to our company of complying with these laws mm-hmm. and what is the estimated cost if we break these laws and get caught. And the latter was almost certainly shown to be a smaller amount of money and that that's what they decided to do because that's what companies that are this size, that's a big part of why they have lawyers. It's not even so much to like always just figure out how they can comply with the law in the cheapest way. It can be deciding what's cheaper, complying with the law or not complying with it. This just yeah, reminds well, me uh, of in high school when I was first told that Menards decides to just dump chemicals in the water because the fines are smaller mm-hmm. than uh than actually paying to properly dispose of the toxic chemicals and uh that it, it is so much exactly what we're talking about here and i i just like the that is so often the case where they're just doing a a, a you know a cost benefit analysis of you yep. know what uh sure the workers will have no benefits but it also won't cost us very much yeah, well, they're right. basically saying it's better to not ask for forgiveness than it is to not ask for permission, <laughs> right? Which is like insane. And then, I mean, uh, the other thing is like there's no there's no threat of any like real criminal penalties. It's all fines. Right. Like if if you or I went out and stole a hundred dollars of product, we would go to jail. Our physical mm-hmm. body would be incarcerated. These people can steal billions of dollars in wages and and other things over the course of decades at a time and it's like little slap on the wrist finds here and there yeah i mean it's it's absolutely ludicrous and one thing i do think we also need to point out is that that 20 million is a ceiling because it's not automatic like that the the workers who are who have like worked worked at chipotle through the end of april 30th of this year They'll automatically get a settlement calculated based on how long they were there. But anybody between when those laws were passed and between April 30th who worked at Chipotle but then left or quit or were fired for whatever reason, they have to file a claim themselves to get it. And just like with any of these things, if it's left to the worker, there's going to be an enormous amount of paperwork that's almost certain to be way too confusing for anybody who isn't a lawyer to understand, which means, and the companies always count on this, that they're not going to actually pay out the $20 million because there's going to be plenty of people who are eligible for compensation in this who are not going to get it because the process of filing for it is a pain in the ass. And so, like, it's not even 20 million. It's less. 
Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, with the amount of time that it's going to take them to pay it out, I mm-hmm. bet they're going to get that much in, in, you know, interest back on any of this money that they're holding on to throughout yeah. that whole period of time. And the, but that's 100%. not, I mean, like to, to move to the next part, which is not moving away from Chipotle, but still focusing on it. We're going to continue with our coverage of the repression in Augusta, Maine, where uh, workers who have tried to apply at other Chipotle, and I mean, if you remember, they were a bunch, they closed the store that was trying to unionize, and now they're blocking all of those workers from even applying to be at any other Chipotle store, which is a clear case of illegal retaliation for union organizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is this is like classic 19th century union busting, like reaching back in time for these old school style. Oh, you tried to form a union? You can't work at any of these places. Like that, it, it's, it's an old tactic and mm-hmm. it's really gross to see it being applied again. Like specifically, you know, from a report at, from New Center, Maine that, that in, interviewed Brandy McNeese, who's the lead organizer for the unionizing workers, she recounted what happened when she actually went to apply to transfer to a different store, saying, this is quoting from the article, the manager told McNeese that the regional manager, Geraldine Maldonado, had directed her not to interview McNeese because the union leader supposedly had prior attendance problems. The manager further told McNeese that she didn't mean to get her hopes up about coming back, but didn't know that, quote, you were part of that group. There it quote. is, right on its face. There it is. I mean, how how could you construe this any other way? Like, yeah. even in the same breath as mentioning attendance problems, they pull the rug out from under that whole argument. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's completely blatant on its face. And I mean, in you addition to that, yeah. like... Yeah, Mc- say, it doesn't even have to. It doesn't even have to be the the lie because or the 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 shift in the in the narrative because there's a literal lie in there in the first place. Yeah, because like McNeese points out, she was never disciplined for attendance issues. So this whole excuse of like, oh, you can't apply here because you were written up. That's just not true. It's pure. It's just a lie. And so like, it it couldn't be more clear that this is illegal retaliation to attempt to prevent workers from inspiring union drives at other stores. And so, you know, Chipotle uh, United has filed ULPs against the company for this illegal retaliatory blacklisting. But I, I think the thing for me, at least that is like the important takeaway from these two stories about Chipotle, both the blacklisting and, you know, just the general union busting, the closing down of the store in Augusta and the 600,000 legal violations is that it's important to fight for reforms in labor law. But as with anything, any win that the that workers in this country have ever gotten, any win that the labor movement has ever gotten, the only way you can enforce it is by the laborers themselves. Like the the way that the only way we're ever gonna give labor law teeth is if when a company violates it, the workers strike. Because that's how you hit them. Because like it's so easy for the companies to just buy off politicians. I mean, I don't know if you've seen any of the stories about, you know, Kristen Cinema and all these other, and even Nancy Pelosi. It is really actually for companies remarkably cheap to purchase U.S. politicians. So, like, ultimately, while it's still important for us to fight for those reforms, it's just as important, if not more important, for us to, like, build up these strong labor movements and for the existing labor movement to support 
independent ones because that's the only way that we can actually give these laws teeth is by direct action by the workers themselves. Absolutely. But, I mean, speaking of horrific working conditions, let's talk about Amazon. Yeah, Yeah. where two more workers have died in New Jersey uh, Amazon warehouses uh, where it's... We we covered this. Uh, was it was two weeks ago uh, mm-hmm. when we covered uh, Rafael Ronaldo uh, Motafrias's death uh, during Prime Week. Well, there have been two more deaths, which we do not have the names of these these workers yet, but we still wanted to make sure to come out here and report this. So back on the twenty fourth, emergency services were called to uh, Amazon's. Uh, Robbinsville, New Jersey warehouse where a worker fell from a three-foot ladder at one of the facility's loading bays. The worker uh, struck his head and was conscious when police arrived, but uh, was transported to the hospital and died three days later. And I just, one thing that I thought was interesting about this quote is that the police were the ones who were there. Uh, and I'm sure that it's partially because all emergency services are supposed to come when the blah, 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 blah. But, like, why is it that it's not, like, EMS services primarily? And also, if the police are showing up, what is it? Is it in case labor unrest arises and suddenly the police <laughs> have to shut down the fact that the people are mad that someone is dying next to them on the on the floor? I mean, yeah, it's that. And then it's also, like you said, when you call for emergency services, they typically try to send one from each department if they can. And in most places, if not all places in the United States, the police are so much better funded than any other right. quote unquote emergency services that there's just way more of them. And you, there's usually one much closer by. They tend to be the first ones to arrive at any scene. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then and- a week later, another worker died at a fulfillment center in Monroe, New Jersey, under even murkier circumstances, where New Jersey's radio station, 101.5, who investigated the recent deaths, uh, were basically not given any information about these deaths beyond, like, a statement from Amazon Corporate. Uh, and so we actually don't even know much about uh, yeah. about that death. I mean... It's really, really concerning, and uh, there have been a lot of deaths at Amazon facilities, especially over the past couple of years. And it's it's beca- it's it's even more clear now how unsafe these facilities are. Yeah, like I mean, we've we've talked a bunch of times on the show about just how incredibly unsafe it is at Amazon, and that's really what this whole segment right now is is going to cover. But like it's one of the things that I think is really emphasized to me just about, you know, trying to read about this and trying to look this up is how routine our society considers this. Like our culture is just like, Oh yeah, no, that's how it just happens. Workers just die at the job and no, you know, it's sad, but it's just the cost of doing business. But it's always like, well, the cost to who like, it, the 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 company issues a boilerplate statement and moves on and like these folks families are left with a gaping hole for the rest of their lives and mm-hmm. like and and when i had to go to this like radio station in jersey and i'm not trying to like say anything like i'm glad they looked into this but the fact that it's like why isn't this a story from reuters or ap or like any of the bigger cuz they don't give a shit yeah. cuz it's not news 
Well, and when, I mean, like, when it comes to actual annual deaths, I mean, last year, the AFL-CIO reported that there was over 5,000 worker d- deaths directly on the job, with uh, almost 100,000 workers who died from occupational diseases. I mean, like, and that's not, that's just the beginning of some wow. of those statistics. Yeah. And I mean, we know we've talked so many times about how dangerous Amazon's warehouses are that they themselves have sent the the average injury rate in the industry through the roof just because of how disproportionate there are that they have an, an average of over twice the industry standard. And it is reflected in just the fact that their business model is built on treating people as disposable and not just in the way that I think most people think of when they think of Amazon, which is, you know, their turnover rate, right? They think of, Oh, they churn through somebody in six months, nine months, and they go hire somebody else. And that is true. And that is bad. And it's an example of the exploitative model that they're built on. But so is this like it, when we talk about like the thinking of people as disposable, it's literal. Like yeah. that, like I, I know that there's the common cliche to talk about the way that capitalism treats workers as a cog in a machine, but like Amazon has people who have a boilerplate statement ready to go when workers die because it happens so often. And yeah. rather than fix that, rather than change the conditions that result in that, because that would be expensive. They just do PR for it to sweep to say, oh, we're so sorry. It was terrible. We did everything we could. But, you know, it's just accidents happen. And those sorts of cliches are so powerful in their ability to just make you stop thinking. Because you're like, well, no, that's true. Accidents do happen. (laughs) But when you look at the numbers, it's like, yeah, they do. But not this fucking many. Right. Like, well, Amazon's injury and death rate is twice that of the rest of comparable industry. And then in their facilities that are heavily automated, it's even more. It's like three times right. the yeah. standard. And so that's why you end up with three worker deaths in three weeks in one state in Amazon yeah. facilities. So uh, the heat that unfortunate that led to the passing of Mota Frias uh, last month is is one that we see really, really routinely. Uh, a recent report by More Perfect Union detailed extremely dangerous conditions faced by workers at the MEM4 facility in Memphis where they have to work in trailers uh, that have been that have seen temperatures hitting 145 degrees. I mean, I was shocked a couple weeks ago when UPS guys were posting thermometers from the back of their trucks that were like 120. 145, like, you can set your oven to 145. Yeah, like, that. I, I mean, I've experienced 120 degree heat a few times and was immediately like, I never want to be within a thousand miles of this location. Right. <laughs> like yeah. I did 145. I'm like, I've, if you showed me like, Oh, the temperature in there is 145. I'm like, Oh, so humans cannot go in there. Right. Like, well, and then Amazon solutions for 145 degree work areas are that you can only work in them for two hours before being rotated out. And anybody who's ever had a job knows how well that is observed, how closely they stick to that rule. And then they're also only given one bottle of water per 10 hour shift, which is just like you can sweat two or three bottles of water in an eight hour shift and a 10 hour shift on a 90 degree day. I don't even want to fucking yeah. talk about hundred plus temperatures. Yeah. I mean, it's insane. And I mean, workers do have said that they routinely ignore the two hour rule for operating conditions that hot. And I mean, to, for just for another like point of reference, OSHA, our favorite, you know, agency for covering up for companies, who, of course, do not have mandatory rules for heat safety, but they have recommendations. And in their, their you know, 
resources about how heat affects workers. They pointed out that workers have died from heat stroke with a heat index of only 86 degrees. So like these trailers that Amazon is telling people to work in for hours at a time are like 50 degrees, 60 degrees hotter than that. I mean, so, in, like, in, an, in an episode, I drink the equivalent of a bottle of water, which is, you know, uh, like an hour and a half of talking in an air-conditioned facility. I can't imagine yeah. having one bottle of water in 145 degrees for... I, this is just so be like ridiculous that this is even considered not just straight up... Uh, attempted murder on every single person who goes into these buildings. Yeah, I mean, forcing people to work in that level of a temperature, I mean, should be considered criminal negligence at a minimum. Um, But of course, you know, we see it over and over again how the courts are never going to work that way under capitalism. But unfortunately, that's not even the last story we have Mm. on the horrible conditions at Amazon this week because More Perfect Union, who put out that report about the workers in Memphis, also recently put out a very good video where they interviewed some of the workers that have been organizing with the ALU in Albany talking about the dangerous conditions that workers face there. And a lot of the stuff they talked about is is the sort of thing where it's because you could, I could see people talking about the trailers and be like, well, you know, we had a heat wave. That's just like, Oh, maybe it only gets that hot for a couple of days. And yeah, they probably shouldn't do that, but that's an extreme situation, which look, yeah, that's not the right response, but I could see people who like to defend companies. Some, fucking ghouls, like that. some absolute fucking like evil ass. Yes. Fucking <laughs> idiots that are the exact reason why I'm so pissed right now. <laughs> but like so the stuff that they're talking about that they've faced in Albany really just speaks to the everyday work faced by every single Amazon worker at any of their facilities. Like I mean, one of the lead organizers who was who was interviewed there explained how she was recently talking with a coworker on the floor who was struggling with a, a big piece of equipment and he explained to her that the reason that he was struggling with it is because the, the previous year he had suffered a stroke while on the warehouse floor working on that same piece of equipment. And after he had that stroke and after he recovered and came back, Amazon just didn't provide him any accommodations whatsoever. And he had to go right back to work, working on the same piece of equipment that he was operating when he suffered that stroke. And there's been absolutely you know, no measures taken whatsoever to allow him to you know, have a work environment that accommodates the... Uh, you know, the awful injury that you can receive from having a stroke. And he, again, this is not an exceptional case. Like workers in Albany say that they've seen workers leave from ambulances, from injuries more than a hundred times in the last year and a half in 18 months. That's an average of over five, like hospitalizable injuries at the facility per month. That's like more than one a week. And like, insane. And they point to Amazon's strict quota system that we've talked about before on the show, uh, like the fact that pickers at the facility have to retrieve 45 items per hour, even if they're oversized or extremely heavy items. So like they mentioned things like you may have to get a like natural gas fireplace that's in a it's like 150 pounds. And that's only one item out of the 45. You have to get an item you in, a, in an hour. You have a minute and 15 seconds to retrieve that and get it to where it needs to go. And yeah, your next five things may be like a book or a thing of ibuprofen, but like these rigid quota systems lead directly 
to these sorts of injuries. Because if you don't meet the quotas, as we talked about so much, you don't meet the quotas, you have time off task, you say you like unions, you get fired. So like these workers understand these quotas to be absolute requirements. And it's either like you meet the quota and you get fired or you don't. And so of course, workers are going to be pushing themselves to try and meet them. And so that's only going to result in injuries. Like some of the pictures in the more perfect union video, which I'll link in the show notes. Cause I really do think people should watch it because some of the visuals I think really help. Like people were showing all sorts of pictures of their legs, which were just covered in massive bruises because of the constant level of you know, running, climbing, picking stuff up, just the incredible loads that the workers are required to carry on a daily basis. And the response when workers get injured is garbage. Like, I mean, one worker in the video, Kimberly Lane, described how less than two months after she started at the Albany facility, uh, she st- suffered from a fall on the warehouse floor and got no help from Amazon's in-house health and safety group, Amcare. And she had to drive herself to the ER where she found out she'd suffered a hernia. You're not supposed to drive with a hernia. Like, uh, the things these workers I don't know how she got herself into her car. Like, that's amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, workers are incredible and have grit and determination that they should never have to use like that. Because when you have a hernia, you should be put on a stretcher and carried to the hospital by professionals. Well, and of course, the company doctor has, has, you know, neglected a ton of workers as well. I mean, like, that's just a a piece of labor history right there. I mean, with with company care specifically only being being there to make sure that you are fit to work. Yeah. Like yeah. company doctors are just the, the doctor equivalent of HR. Like yeah. they, they, they exist to give the company cover to say you can go back to work. Like that's you, their entire job. That's what their paychecks. For, you're better right? off going to an elementary school nurse. Cause at least they're a state employee. <laughs> yeah. Like unironically. Yes. Um, and yeah. So like we, you know, these conditions in Memphis, these conditions in, Albany, these conditions at all of these places in New Jersey that have killed workers. Like we, we see that this is a truly systemic issue that is built into Amazon's business model. And so no wonder we have so many places that have contacted the ALU for organizing and equally no wonder why Amazon is fighting tooth and nail and with every legal and illegal tool they can pull out to try and stop those unions. Because like, one of the first things I can guarantee you that's going to come out of the first ALU contract is going to be enforceable rules for workplace safety. And that's going to save a lot of people, like not just potentially like, I mean, lives for sure, but also just the pain and agony that people suffer from having to do this sort of thing day after day after day after day for 10 hours at a time for weeks and weeks and months and months and years and years on end. And that's the sort of thing that Amazon looks at and sees like, yeah, okay, so that may make them happier, but what about our billions and billions and billions of profits? So like all of this to really just underline like, This is what Amazon taking control of like basically the commercial system in the United States is based on. And it's why we like as members of the working class, as people in socialist organizations and as people in the labor movement have to be like standing with the Amazon workers have to be providing material support 
to the ALU and any, and not just the ALU to Amazonians United to mm-hmm. cause to like every, every group that is organizing workers at Amazon. Because like if, if there, the union movement is crushed at Amazon, this is going to keep happening. Yeah. And because it's the only thing that's going to stop it from happening is a union drive. And that's why, you know, we talk about this on the show so much because Amazon is, you know, the second largest employer in the country and they keep buying shit up to before they're going to be the biggest one. And so if we don't stop them now, this is just going to keep getting worse. Yep. Right. Well, well and, and I want to talk know, about that. Uh, did you want to make a point before we move on, John? Yeah, real quick before we move on, since uh, a lot of what we just talked about was pretty heavy, and we're going to move on to some more pretty heavy stuff. Uh, as long as we're talking about Amazon unions, I just wanted to ask, did you see the video of Chris Smalls rapping Fuck Jeff Bezos and Billionaires They Gotta Go? <laughs> yes. Pretty good stuff. Great. Really great <laughs> bit of internet. Oh, I'll have to check that one out. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in, it, I, mean I, I kind of wanted to have a conversation about this because there's a reason why we're seeing a lot more independent unions. There's Mm -hmm. a reason why organizing is not, has seen a huge decline over many, many years. I mean, we have an entire episode series about the decline of American unionism. And, and part of it is a cutting of organizing by unions themselves Mm -hmm. and a huge stockpiling of funds for, presumably emergency cases or something it's not really even stated it's really just ridiculous that our unions themselves have not been especially seeing this giant surge doubling or more the amount of organizing workforce that's out there helping the working class actually organize in this time where we do see real engagement with working class struggle and and to kind of highlight that, we've put together a couple of, of information, a little bit of information that we actually got from an In These Times article where Hamilton Nolan uh, reported uh, that unions have uh, assets that have soared to or, uh, $29.1 billion, not including pensions, uh, and which is nearly double a decade ago, but yet has slashed organizing workforce their organizing workforce by nearly twenty percent over the last decade. How is it that these things make any sense at all for our unions? And it does come from a lot of the things that we talk about in our overtime episodes and the ways that business unions have taken over our unions in in general. And we need to actually get out there and start making these unions rank and file or build up at least big rank and file movements within our unions. Yeah, well, I mean, we've, we've seen that with the... Um the uh, reform slate within the Teamsters winning, mm-hmm. and uh, we've especially seen that kind of energy in Mexico with the auto workers who got tired of their Absolutely. company unions and have been joining groups like Cintia, and I, I can't remember the name of the other one, but I mean, that's really, really great uh, energy down there as well. And uh, it, it's, it's tough because I think a lot of these business unions and the way that they do act like a company in themselves, like part of the devil of that is that they are the example companies can point to when they're trying to discourage union drives. And uh, that's a really, that's a really sinister like strategy that they have available to them because, because of these, uh, ossified, you know, business union, uh, type organizations. Yeah. And that's exactly why, you know, as you referenced, we hammer on so much about the importance of these sorts of, of rank and file, like fights for democracy, 
within the existing big unions, like the TDU, mm-hmm. like UAWD, like really any any caucus that if you're in one of these big unions and you're fighting, you know, to actually turn your your union back into an organization that fights for its members and doesn't just sit there and accrue money and put together, you know, a big fucking strike fund that they never use, like. Because the the ultra-left response to this sort of information, and one that I totally get, would be to say, look, these unions have known this is a problem for decades, and they've still chosen not to do it. These unions can't be fixed. They, these problems are built in. And I get that. I told Because I you know, see people online post about how you know, the big unions are all there, inherently reactionary, and we need new organizations. I get that. The problem is, is that those unions have literally millions of workers in them. They are the largest working class organizations in this country by far. Like the Teamsters are, I think, the single largest working class. It's them or the SEIU. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And like, I don't just mean to, you know, fall back on Lenin, but it's really like it is it's an issue that like, yes, business unionism has destroyed really the u.s labor movement and we go if you want to hear more of the details and the history on that I, I i recommend the decline of american unionism series i think it's some of our best work um mostly based on you know the work of kim moody excellent labor economist and historian but like we can't just abandon these organizations because like look how hard we have to fight with these independent unions to get you know a, an organizing unit of five thousand people Mm-hmm. Like, whereas there's a million workers in the Teamsters, a million workers in SEIU, millions of workers in the AFL-CIO. And those organizations are made up of working class people, unlike the Democratic Party, which is, of course, structurally, you know, built around their billionaire donors. Right. Well, so, that, that's really interesting, too, because I think when you bring up the Democratic Party, you touch on something where a lot of people especially if you're a Marxist or an anarchist, let's say you are allergic to the idea of reform in many cases of trying to, because the, the levers of power on the bourgeois national political level are so tightly guarded and surrounded by so much money. They're just not really accessible that way to you. The interesting thing about unions, they're not set up like that at all. They are much more up for grabs. You don't necessarily have to call it reform. You could say you're commandeering your union and taking it back into the hands of the workers, whatever. But it's it's a much more available option to you than, say, trying to push a Biden figure left or some insane shit like that. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. And and because that's the thing is like I don't ever want people to think that you know we're just like all unions are automatically like anything they do is always good. That's not what we're saying. Like that's mm-hmm. why we support all these reform uh, groups within the unions. But it's for better or for worse, these organizations are based on their working class membership. Mm -hmm. And that's why like any socialist working in the labor movement. Yes. Do if you do salting for independent unions, go work with the ALU work with, uh, I mean, people will say Starbucks versus United is an independent because they're working with the SEIU, but whatever, Mm -hmm. like any of these independent labor movements. Yes, absolutely work with them. But also, we also need as many people in these big unions, in the Teamsters, in the UAW, in SEIU, in every membership union, in the AFL-CIO, except for the unions that aren't really unions, the cop unions, mm-hmm. right. who should be ejected from the AFL-CIO. Right. But we and- need people in there making these unions better and taking them back. And, well, yeah. and convincing the AFL-CIO to eject the cops. Like, How are you going to yes. do that if you don't get a bunch of class-conscious-minded people in the AFL-CIO membership in general? 
Exactly. exactly. I mean, like, we're not obviously levying these critiques in order to to dissuade workers from engaging in these. In fact, if anything, we're doing the opposite, saying that specifically engaging with these entities is of utmost importance to us as the working class. And mm-hmm. to actually yeah. get out there and get into these unions and build up these rank and file movements because our resources are there. The, our comrades right. are in these organizations, and it is our responsibility to take these pieces of information whether they be kind of negative or not and use them as an organizing force for us and our comrades to actually build up this movement so that we can make real change in this world and stop people from dying in warehouses yeah absolutely i mean i i think fundamentally like that's why this information is important because so often when challenged like people of the like people who are entrenched in the business unionist leadership or people who have you know bought some of the propaganda the class collaborations propaganda around that'll be like well look our membership has shrunk so much we can't just be doing strikes all the time willy-nilly and yet these unions have only spent 70 million a year in strike benefits over the last decade again where their assets are in the nearly 30 billion dollars so that is nothing they could be spending so much more. And it's important for us to know that. Not to like discredit unions in general, but to discredit the people who have access to those funds. Because those people, the business unionist leadership, are sabotaging the labor movement. And so that's why it's so important for us to support people within these unions who are willing to change that. Like, hopefully we're going to see with the Teamsters, with Sean O'Brien and the Zuckerman slate, and hopefully we're going to see with the UAWD as they continue to grow. Mm -hmm. So, like, we need people in these unions focused on building membership and and like building within the rank and file to basically build a movement that tells the leadership of these big unions to either start spending your goddamn money on organizing and rebuilding the labor movement or get the fuck out of the way (laughs) yeah well and especially (laughs) you know get some actual like again and i've said this before yeah sure uh right to work is a problem but the protecting rights to organize act is the thing that will give us the most power we should be focusing if we're going to be doing any sorts of actions towards reform within the state from the workers perspective our right to organize is what we must be defending yeah Yeah, and we're only going to do that if we're willing to spend the strike money to actually have strikes to enforce this stuff yes exactly well and also right to work what an insidious turn of phrase what about the right to eat what about the right to like <laughs> right? sleep under a roof between some walls? Yeah. So, I mean, anyways, like we really think it's important to get that information out there so that people who are working within those unions have those facts to help back up the, the fact that, you know, we really need a revival within the labor movement mm-hmm. that changes, you know, a lot of the positions in power. But speaking uh, of, I don't really know what a great transition for this is. This is just a really heinous story, but like, so this is great reporting out of Labor Notes, as always. Um, so we've talked in the in, several times, many times, unfortunately, unfortunately, many, many times on the show about the way that this country has been built on slavery since its inception and that that continues through the use of prisoners for slavery. And I think we've even talked about the use of detainees as slave mm-hmm. labor before. And this story is about that, where specifically... This is about 50 immigrant detainees in a California immigration prison, specifically the Golden State Annex U.S. ICE facility, uh, who have been now on strike for over two months. And they're demanding improvements to their conditions, 
Because, of course, as I'm sure everybody's aware, the conditions in migrant facilities are oftentimes even worse than the already atrocious and, you know, really crime against humanity conditions that are seen in most other U.S. prisons. Mm -hmm. But also the fact that they're paid a a joke fake slave wage where they are literally paid $1 a day to work. That's it. So, again, if you average that out, that's like uh, $0.13 an hour. Uh, it's yeah, it's, it's essentially nothing. And, and, and this is one of two big strikes that they talked about in there. The other being a strike at the Mesa Verde ice facility where workers have actually been on strike since late April. And this comes out of the fact that, you know, of course, prison companies and the government claim that this, this is, you know, voluntary labor that none of the detainees are required to work and they choose to do it because they want to. But as these detainees themselves and their legal representation uh, and also just, you know, folks that are supporting them have explained that's not true. Like Alan Benjamin, who's a delegate to the San Francisco Labor Council, who's been working to help these detainees, told Labor Notes, quote, they are compelled to do this. It's not voluntary. It's compulsory work without proper sanitation and equipment. End quote. And it's because like these workers are basically forced to replace sanitation staff at these facilities where they're made to clean the prison dormitories, many of which are in really unsafe conditions. Like they've talked about black mold spreading all over the walls, especially in the showers, toxic dust blowing through the ventilation system. I I mean, like one prisoner told uh, at the Golden State Annex told uh, KQED, who was a public radio station in California, quote, I'm afraid because my lung has been impacted. The dust and mold are bad for our health, and unfortunately, we are in a place where it feels like they don't care about our health, end quote. And the reason why this is compulsory, in addition to, I'm sure, like physical coercion by the, the guards, is that in order to just survive in detention, The prisoners have to pay for stuff. Even in prison in the United States, you cannot escape the tyranny of the market. Like phone calls, hygiene products, food costs money that they have to buy from the prison commissary. And there's no other way for most of these workers to get any money than by the tiny wage of $1 a day for replacing a cleaning staff. Yeah, well, and that that is so ridiculous as well because... uh, if they want to have a video call, it's $2.50 for 15 minutes. So they have to work two and a half days to get a 15-minute mm-hmm. video call. They have to work six days to get $6 to be able to afford a package of beef. Like, just to be able to eat meat, get, like, real protein, because I'm sure they don't have, like, you know, tofu options or whatever. Like, they're going to have to work for six straight days and then not be able to call their family, you know? Yeah. Like... <sighs> It's it is it is hard to find like the words to describe how perverse this arrangement is. Like cruel doesn't really seem to I don't know do it justice. Uh, yeah, I'm not gonna lie. This story made me extremely angry. <laughs> um, reading it and recalling it, uh, like, and it's I don't know. I don't. This probably isn't the worst part for the 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 workers, but like it. This gets into the. The really the reasons why if you're involved with a private prison company, you should be in jail forever. Like prison abolition does not include people who have profited from the incarceration of human beings. Like those should be the last people left. It's like them and the not and literal Nazis. Like uh, because again, they are doing this not only because you know like uh, it's a it's a like 
they can get labor out of the workers. It's because they can increase their profits because mm-hmm. by not having to pay for janitorial staff, by being able to pay slave wages to these workers, it just makes groups like Geo Group, who, who is the contractor who administers this facility, even more money to the point that they, they made $2.3 billion in revenue last year. Like this is a billion dollar company, all of whose profits only come from locking people in cages. And, and in this case, again, this is a migrant detention facility. This is not a, a supermax where you could at least see, yeah, maybe there are you know, some guy who killed like 20 people. And you're like, okay, that guy should probably be in jail, I guess. But like, these are people whose crime is they were in the United States while not being white. Because there's no Ukrainian refugees who illegally came into this country after their war started that are locked up in these prisons making a dollar a day for cleaning stuff. No, like when those people tried to come into the country because, you know, there's a crisis in their country, they were welcomed with open arms because it met the political goals of the United States ruling class elite. And this is nothing against Ukrainian refugees. They should be welcomed wherever they had to flee to. That's fine. It's that the reason that these detainees are not treated the same way is, be, is just because of white supremacy. It's because th- it's easy using the United States settler colonial ideology to define them as less than human and thus be able to use them as an exploitable labor force through which Geo Group makes, again, billions of dollars. The only migrants in these facilities are Central American, African, and Asian. It is like it, it is a inherently racist system yeah, well, in like- addition to the cruelties that ex- would exist even regardless of that. Well, and a lot of these people, like they're called detainees because they have not actually been convicted of any kind of crime. And so the fact that these companies are allowed to make money off of their labor, whatever the wage is, is already a conflict of interest because that gets in the way of any incentive they would have to actually process these people and either, you know, figure out a path to citizenship or deport them because they would rather just keep them suspended in slave labor limbo forever. Yeah. It's the whole thing is, and, and on top of all of this, geo group has the fucking nerve to then come out when asked about this and say, there's no strike. What are you talking about? They literally put out a statement saying, quote, choosing not to participate in a voluntary program cannot constitute a labor strike End quote, which Nuremberg, the Hague, whichever one, whatever the new version is, you go there. (laughs) <laughs> and then you go yeah, to jail. Yeah, I mean, this is, oh, oh, they chose not to participate in a voluntary program. Uh, sure, if they don't participate in the voluntary program, they'll likely starve. But hey, they could choose not to. Like again, we see these the the fundamental contradictions within the capitalist system recreated in, in even more stark, horrific terms within the the prison system, and it's it's the sort of I want to talk about this story because I like this is the sort of story that should be like in front of everybody because this is a fucking disgrace this is horrifying like these are concentration camps mm-hmm. and you have like what is the difference between this and any other slave labor camp it, the, and it's that we live in this country and so our propaganda system calls it a, a migrant detention center instead of a concentration camp it's the language around it is the only thing that's different in yeah. the ideology like it, it, functionally it is the same well and even and, even our most supposedly progressive elected officials go to bat for these things routinely yeah it's insane yeah, yeah right. i mean there, I mean, there was a I story think that, 
that one of the things that exemplifies this, I mean, is literally a threat from a police guard that is documented on uh, one of the immigration cases that uh, has been affected. One detainee explained that the guards would tell them, the judge will find that you aren't obeying the rules, and if you're not obeying the rules in here, then what will make them think you'll obey the rules out there? Basically implying that if you don't work, you will never be free. But also, yeah. like, what is is this like? What is this like? A work will set you free kind of thing. I mean, yeah, like, it's that's, literal that's exactly Nazi what shit. It is. It's literal Nazi shit. Yeah, it's, I, yeah, there's, yeah, I mean, there's, there is, really, I mean, I, I pointed this out when we did did the repressive state apparatus episodes, but like, people don't really get the fact that like the SS started out as a border police. Like mm-hmm. it, on the Polish border, like there is not really much functional difference between the SS and the U.S. Like and ICE and the Border Patrol, like they serve the same function now, and they'll likely serve the same future function. So, like, well, and I think that I think the racial is, element there, I think, is really important to to really draw the comparison too, because Germany had been committing genocides in Africa for years and years mm-hmm. before the the Holocaust, which is also an absolute like devastating tragedy, happened. But it became it came to national attention because what it appeared was that oh no, now Europe is unstable. Now there's genocide right. in Europe, and that's the problem. And what we're seeing here is oh, there's no problem with these camps because it's just brown people in there right yeah absolutely i mean, I mean Win- winston churchill is like hailed as this huge hero he committed atrocities all across africa and india he killed like an untold number of people yeah and i mean again the other thing that's so frustrating about this is you have geo group on the one hand saying it's not there's no strike because you can't strike a voluntary program and yet we also know they've retaliated against several of the detainees for who have been striking mm-hmm. by forcing them into solitary confinement which is again itself legally defined by the rest of the world as torture it's like the US and i, I think like Saudi Arabia and maybe Israel are like yeah, the South only country or something that like don't recognize it that way. And I mean, like Cal California state OSHA agency has launched an investigation into unsafe work conditions, but that's like, if that does anything, it'll be like, Oh, you need to do better about controlling the black mold in your prison while you have your slaves working there. Like, which I'm sure. Okay. But that's not getting at the root of the fucking problem. Like, and, and I cannot see anyone in the democratic party with any real pull doing anything about this because we see constantly every pretty much all, but I don't know, maybe a dozen members of the, of like the democratic party, the actual elected people are rushing to embrace nineties era law and order fascist politics to try and like outright the GOP for the midterms on these sorts of things. So like if anything, like the, I can only see them, further expanding this. So I, I really don't see them doing anything about this, which is why it's so important. These sorts of stories get out and why, like I, I, the one encouraging thing, I do think it's really great that like the San Francisco labor council is trying to help these workers. That's great. Mm -hmm. Like that's like the one genuinely good piece of news from this story is that there are actual people within the labor movement who are like, these are, (laughs) not only our fellow human beings, they're also our fellow workers and what's going on is completely fucked and we have to stop it. And so there is a support fund 
for people who are trying to help these workers and especially like when they get out, be it in the U S or in Mexico or, or, or if they're sent back to, or a central American country, African country, uh, whatever, if they get deported to try and help these folks, unfortunately there is not really a lot we can do materially while they're in there right now beyond, you know, building campaigns to try and close these prisons down, which of course we should be doing, but I'll put the link to the strike fund. Well, not strike fund, but the support fund for these, uh, detainees in the show notes. Cause I mean, it, at least that's something we can do, but I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, this country's evil. Yeah. It's yeah. fucking terrible. Um, but you know, I, I know that with, this has been very emotional, angry episode. We've got a little bit more anger and a couple more victories for you at the end of this episode where we are going to be going to our normal Starbucks segment, uh, this week. In fact, just today, so Starbucks has issued a, a legal complaint about how the NLRB has been participating in misconduct by trying to by trying to get workers to vote in union elections to get to get workers <laughs> yeah. the ability to vote. Uh, the company issued, a, I guess, today is Monday. We're recording on Monday, the fifteenth. Uh, the company issued a letter claiming that the NLRB agents have engaged in highly improper systemic misconduct, claiming that they worked to uh, to tip the scales in the union in the union election in the store in Kansas City that unionized a few months back. The company claims that the NLRB agents secretly coordinated with the union to arrange <laughs> in-person voting instead of mail-in voting, which sometimes they want mail-in voting, sometimes they want in-person voting. It's totally mm-hmm. arbitrary whenever they feel like that. It, whenever It's basically just, what is the one the workers want? The opposite, please. Right. Um, mm-hmm and that the, they provided confidential details of ballots received to union members to allow them to influence workers who had not yet voted uh, in an attempt to cover up this conduct. Basically, again, saying that they're undermining the election by allowing more workers to vote. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this whole, it's, it, it's basically they're copying Amazon's playbook where Amazon claimed the NLRB was biased in favor of the ALU and trying to discredit the election that way. The thing, though, that with this is like they're using this complaint to try and justify stop pausing all Starbucks Workers United elections across the country while they're dealing with this. So and and to to go specifically into their complaint, this is largely focusing on a store in Overland Park, which is like an area of Kansas City. And we I I remember when we reported on the victory of the workers there because it came right after. The company had fired four workers for unionizing. So literally Starbucks's complaint is that the NLRB, by helping workers make sure they could vote, unduly influenced the election. But Starbucks firing four union leaders did not unduly influence the election. So, I mean, this whole thing is bullshit. Like, this is clearly a lie. This clearly, like... Amazon baselessly asserted the NLRB helped the ALU and and presented no evidence that they did during the hearings. I, I, I mean, I didn't watch all the hearings, but I watched a decent amount of it, and it was all bullshit. It's all just trying. It's delay tactics. It's it's just using their legal resources to throw anything they can at the union drive. And this is clearly the same thing. And but so like really, I think the only question in this case is not whether the NLRB acted and like properly or improperly, because. Amazon, the Starbucks's assertions are clearly nonsense, but it's whether the judge that ends up seeing this 
agree agrees with Starbucks basically that the process of unionizing is illegal, which is yeah. more or less what their real argument. Well, and they're mm-hmm. doing this so that it exits the NLRB's jurisdiction and moves straight to, right. to judges because they yeah. know that the judicial system is more is more preferential towards businesses than the NLRB, which is also preferential towards businesses. <laughs> right. Yeah, so I mean, I think all we this came out today, so I think most of like all I've seen from a response from the NLRB is like we take these allegations seriously and we'll investigate them, which I mean, it's same day, so I'm not surprised. Like it's a it's an organization of lawyers, that's kind of what I would expect to to hear from a response from them. So I mean, we'll see how this goes. It's possible they could get a temporary restraining order while this is being investigated that would temporarily pause all like union elections, which would be have probably have an incredibly chilling effect on on the drive. So I certainly hope that doesn't happen. We'll we'll definitely keep people posted. Uh, it's incredibly fucked up. But in addition to Starbucks's fuckery, there has been, of course, continued pushback from the workers. I mean, there's been strikes all over the country over the past week. Uh, in in Buffalo, there has been a series of rolling strikes at various different stores there to protest the firing of 13-year uh, employee Sam Amato. The 874-COM-AV strike in Boston has continued as well. They're uh, just about to hit a month on strike. I believe they hit uh, 29 days today, by far the longest strike of any of the Starbucks that have been unionized so far. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Starbucks continues to escalate the police presence at the strike there. Uh, I don't believe there's been any like direct incidences, like the police hurt, like attacking people or arresting anybody. But, uh, last Wednesday, August 10th, the union t- tweeted out a picture that the Boston PD has started keeping a prisoner transport vehicle, a, a literal paddy wagon parked next to the strike, which is, you know, you only, there's been no reports of any incidents at the strike line. The strike has been completely peaceful. I mean, from all the videos I've seen of it, honestly, like just general good vibes. <laughs> and so like, there's no call for that except as an act of intimidation and like really continues to serve the point of why the AFL CIO should eject the fucking police unions. Cause their whole role here is just to break the fucking union. So Uh, But good on the workers for not being intimidated by that, for continuing to stand strong on their strike line. So, I mean, it's been great to see that the workers are just like, we're not going to take this. We're going to use our collective rights and go on strike. Hell yeah. And, um, And those strikes are continuing this week. Like on Monday, three more stores in California have gone on strike in Santa Cruz, Lakewood, and Barstow to demand that California, that, uh, Starbucks and their, campaign of illegal union busting and come to the table and negotiate. Uh, Workers in Eugene, Oregon are also striking on the first three days of this week. And so that brings us to well over 60 strikes that unionized Starbucks stores have held this year. That's incredible. Um, I mean, unionized, how many unionized Starbucks stores were there, you know, half a year ago, none. And now they've had 60 strikes. Yeah. Hell yeah. And so just to cap it off with that bit of good news that we always want to close our show with uh, before we get to the meme review, there were more union wins this week. On Thursday, August 11, there were wins at two more stores. We had workers at the Hanley and Dale store in Richmond Heights, Missouri, won their election 22 to 3, and then workers at the Maine and North Lewis location in Carbondale, Illinois, also won their election in a similarly lopsided 11 to 2 vote. So congratulations to those workers joining the well over 200 unionized Starbucks Workers United stores. Absolutely. And 
in the thought of something being lopsided with almost this entire <laughs> episode being so angry, we are going to move to the meme review, which is supposed <laughs> to give us a little bit of levity. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I'm ready to have a little chuckle now. I see we got uh, the share zone to start us off. That's a great way to get our feet wet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So our first meme today, cl- a, a, you know, this is very much all the classic elements you expect from a DeShare Zone joint. We've got the Grim Reaper wreathed in flames and then a whole bunch of words with a lot of spelling mistakes. So we've got... <laughs> Everyone should be paid double what they're, and it's the wrong there, making now. (laughs) And then in very small, constantly changing word art font at the bottom, and hot dogs should also be free. The zoo should have cats you you can pet. And finally... Outlaw leaf blowers. I I love the the uh, just tacking on demands at the end. Uh, <laughs> hot dogs should also yeah. be free. And also in the little circles that uh, have the Share Zone logo, oh, there's yeah. the uh, every uh, every job, every person they can afford it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely correct, right. admin. And speaking of tacking on demands, our next one is well, and I actually don't know who this woman is, but she's got glowing red eyes, like oh. a lot of meme per- people. What's that? So this is a this is a an OG meme made by friend, uh, like you know, listener, friend of the show, uh, Justice Bison, who dropped this. Uh, in our discord after the most recent episode where we were talking about the Panama national strike. And so this is a, this is a star Trek Voyager meme. We've got the, the Borg character seven of nine and it's with laser eyes and it's just captioned because again, referring to the, the Panamanian national strike four of eight demands met about to be seven of nine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah. I love that thought though. Just like, you know what? We have got pretty much everything. Uh, let's just quick sneak another one in there. Love it. Hell yeah. And, al- and also, Absolutely. big shout outs to Justice Bison. That's who got me started playing Minecraft right around the start of the pandemic and like showed me around, taught me how things worked in game. Very I cool. Think, Nothing not, but love for Justice Bison. Hell yeah. I hang out with them fairly often, actually. They're very cool people. But anyway, enough talking about our friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Back to the memes. Uh, this one is just a, uh, a, a screenshot of a... Qu- Quora question, which I don't know, is some website. I don't know, or some app. Uh, just <laughs> says, where you ask, yeah. What? It's like Yahoo Answers, basically. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. And it says, is it for fuck's sake or for fuck sake? It's it's for a work email, so it has to sound professional. And I just love the idea that someone's like, we got to make sure that we get this idiom correctly, because otherwise my boss is going to totally ignore this aggressive email. What What's the MLA standard for telling your boss to fuck off? <laughs> I don't know MLA, but I do know Chicago, which is, hey, go fuck yourself, buddy. <laughs> That's right. So... Our next one here, this is a modification of a, uh, a Super Mario comic. So you've got the end of a Mario level, one of those ones where you have to jump off Yoshi to get to the uh, the end gate. And so it's Mario's on Yoshi. But in this case, it's not Mario. It's the capitalist pig guy. Uh, and so it's, 
it's a been fun workers, but only a one is a destined to achieve victory. And then he goes to jump off, yells Yahoo. And then <laughs> the next panel you've got, oh, but suddenly Yoshi has grabbed his foot, dragging him down with him as the, you know, surprised <laughs> capitalist pig <laughs> screams at the power of the workers. <laughs> I, I like the, uh, the shift on this one. It's very, it's very nice. And the art on this is good too. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I just last... saw the last one. I saw it on Twitter today, and my jaw was on the floor when I saw this. <laughs> this fits the theme of the episode. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, this is just a photo of a coffee mug. Just a, a regular coffee mug. It's got, it's like light green. It's got little speckles on it. It seems like something that would be great to hold uh, a nice warm cup of coffee in the morning. It's got a, a, a you know, live, laugh, love, uh, wellness bullshit kind of statement on it that says, be here now but then in text right below that we see where this cup has come from which is the guantanamo bay gift shop in cuba (laughs) there is a fucking gift shop in guantanamo bay which i did not know in fact i just saw another photo uh today of a minions shirt yeah at the guantanamo bay gift shop i've seen the stuff going around the 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 internet over the last couple days about this where they've got like a Disney shop and they've got like world's best dad. And then it's captioned Guantanamo Bay. And it's just like, whew, what man. the hell? <laughs> what the like, God fucking hell? You could do a dissertation on like just all of the layers of ideology <laughs> contained in just the entire concept. Guantanamo Bay gift shop. Yeah, like, that's like an eldritch abomination, but somehow more racist. Yeah, like do you, do, do would you go to like the site of a like one of the Japanese internment camps and buy a fucking co- commemorative coffee mug about mindfulness? Right. Well, and also like the be here now. I mean, it, this is about mindfulness, but really it's like be here in Guantanamo. I don't I don't think <laughs> yeah. that people really want to be there. And I and yeah, I think that most people don't wild. want the Americans there. Yeah. Anyways, I'm like, so mad. This shit I'm is so insane. mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So apologies to our listeners where we were like, oh yeah, the meme review is the fun part. Well, here's the part <laughs> where we talk about America's uh, offshore torture camp. Yeah. Um, and the fact that it has a gift shop. Yeah. You know what? In fact, let's just wrap. Let's. This is this is the episode, folks. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to support our work, you can do so at patreon.com slash workstoppage. If you give us five bucks a month, you have access to all of our overtime episodes. We're due, we just did one on uh, the original like textile worker strikes that happened in the United States, and we're going to be doing another part to that. Uh, we've got our overtime episodes, which we've mentioned a bunch in this episode. I'm not going to go over that again. Jump in the Discord. Uh, follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to Red Game Table. There is a new episode. And as always, labor peace is not in our fucking interest. God, how many times do I have to say it? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Solidarity uh, forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity, everybody. Close the concentration camps. Yes. Yes.